people these days. Matthew chapter 16, verse, uh, Matthew, Mark chapter 16, verse 14. And we're going to read through verse 20 this evening. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, we're not going to cover it all, but we'll, we'll read through the end of the book because next Sunday morning we'll finish the end of the book and we'll move on to some other material. But uh, I have really enjoyed going through Mark. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Um, Mark chapter 16 and verse 14 through 20. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, uh, he was received up into heaven, excuse me, and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Now, that's where we're going to preach through next Sunday morning, but tonight we're only going to get through verse 16. And uh, so let me just give you a quick review from this morning. This morning we had the, the Lord Jesus meeting with them in the upper room. Uh, the disciples were gathered there in the upper room. It was the evening of the resurrection. And uh, so Mary Magdalene had come in and said, He's risen, but they didn't believe her. And then Cleopas and at least one other disciple, we're not sure if it was Luke or who, but they came in and told what happened on the Emmaus Road, and they didn't believe them. Neither did they believe the evidence nor the testimony. There was a stone rolled away, a stone that weighed a ton and a half to two tons, and they didn't believe in spite of the stone being rolled away. It was verified by the women. They didn't believe the women's testimony. The tomb was empty. Um, it was verified by the women as well as Peter and John who had seen it empty. There was no body, and I mean no physical body. There was no corpse. Jesus' body was gone, and nobody had it because if they had of, they would have publicized it. The, if the Jews wanted to kill Jesus' religion, all they had to do was drag out the body and say, here is his crucified body, this is a hoax. They didn't have it. They couldn't do that. The Romans could have protected their, their governmental integrity if they would have drug out the body. But uh, nobody had it. Jesus' body was gone. And so there was no body. They had the report of two men who had not only talked with him and listened to a rather lengthy Bible study, but these two men had seen him break bread. I'm left to assume that there was something um, unique about the way Jesus broke bread. I don't think anybody broke it like he broke it. And something about the way he broke bread opened their eyes and they realized it was him. So just understand. Now at some point, Luke tells us that Simon came in, that's Peter, he came in and said, I've seen the Lord. And at some point, this whole thing began to shift. But what really changed it was when Jesus came into the upper room himself. And uh, so, now I just want to give you this, you know, we talked about their disbelief, 
But there is a positive side to their disbelief. And, and I would just, before we move on, I would like to draw, before we talk about the, the Great Commission, I would like to draw one simple lesson. And that lesson is this. Their disbelief was wrong. Uh, I don't argue with that. But I have, to, I have to stop and say, but you know what? They were unwilling to accept experience as a proof of doctrine. And that's something that this day and age has struggled with. As a matter of fact, every day and age has struggled with it. Um, you know, experience is not the final proof of doctrine. Just because somebody said, well, it happened to me, I talked with tongues, doesn't mean that it is a biblical doctrine. Doesn't mean that it's right. Somebody says, well, I experienced, I had this ecstatic dream. I don't care what you had. You might have had too many onions on your hamburger before bed. I don't care what you had. If the Word of God doesn't say it, it's not so. Okay? The Word of God is the final, the final rule for faith and practice. And uh, so to that extent, I kind of agree with these guys being holdouts. They were not willing to just accept anything for proof. And uh, there should be a point there for us, a practical lesson in doctrine um, that we need to refuse things that are not based upon the Word of God. A doctrine is to be based upon the revelation of God's Word. So, as we look at verse 14, let me give you five things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished. Um, okay, we see here that he's raised from the dead. The stone's been rolled away. The body's gone. Mary's seen him. Uh, now, the women have seen him. I cited nine sightings this morning of people that had seen the resurrected Christ. And so, but let me give you five things that the resurrection accomplished. First of all, it accomplished the physical renewing of his life. His body was dead. Uh, graveyard dead. It never did corrupt, but it was dead. And there were 12 proofs we gave you a week ago Sunday, 12 proofs for that. But uh, turn with me to John chapter 20, if you would, please. John chapter 20. And uh, I want to show you verses 26 through 28. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. And uh, there's, a, there's a value to this. But Thomas, one of the 12, and I'm looking at verse 24 now, chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto him, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now here's Thomas basing his belief on experience. I'm going to have to experience it before I believe it. I'm not going to believe the Word of God. I've got to touch it, see it, feel it, taste it, etc. Well, 26, after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, uh, the, doors of, uh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Hither, reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Uh, he was convinced by now. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. 
Okay, that's faith or, or belief based upon experience. But notice what he said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I'm one of those. I have not seen, yet I have believed. Okay? Our, our faith is supposed to be dependent upon the Word of God and lodged in the Word of God. Now, uh, but that being said, Jesus' body was plumb dead. But now, all of a sudden, his life has been renewed physically. When you read a statement of faith, it must always include the word physical. When it talks about the death of Jesus on the cross, he died physically on the cross. He was resurrected again the third day physically uh, uh, after the uh, crucifixion. Three days later, he was resurrected physically. And when he comes again in the rapture, the Bible or the statement of faith should say he is coming again physically. Because lots of false teachers will say, oh, Jesus is coming again, but it's just a phantom. Okay, they're, they're taken away from his deity and taken away from the truth. Jesus really physically raised from the dead. And his physical life was restored or renewed. Okay, here's the second thing. So we have the physical renewing of his life. The second thing is the reunion of his body and his spirit. Now, why is that important to us? Well, it should be important to us because that's exactly what's going to happen to us when Jesus comes again. Okay, what happens to a Christian when they die? When a Christian dies, the body goes to the grave, the spirit goes to be with the Lord. And on resurrection morning, when Jesus returns uh, in the rapture, I'm not talking about riding on a white horse here, that's seven years later, but when he returns in the rapture to take away his church from this earth, and he brings the spirits of those deceased believers with him, he brings their spirit resurrects their bodies and reunites their soul and spirit or their body and spirit just like Jesus was reunited. His body and his spirit were reunited in the resurrection. First Thessalonians chapter four, if you'd turn there. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse thirteen. This is a powerful passage of scripture, one of the two primary passages dealing with the rapture. Uh, beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That's his biblical terminology for those that have died. He's talking about believers that have died, body in the grave, spirit with the Lord. Um, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede um, them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So I just want you to see there's a second thing here that, uh, that the Lord lets us in on. Jesus' resurrection gives us an idea of how it's going to be for us on the first resurrection morning. That's what's going to happen. So his 
There was a physical renewing of life in his body. Secondly, there was a reunion of his body and his spirit. Here's the third thing. The subjugation, boy, that's a hard word, subjugation, the subjugation of death. Turn with me to the book of uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. We'll just look at one word there before we pop over to Hebrews. But uh, here's what the Lord says. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And when Jesus came up out of the grave, he showed that he had taken the stinger out of death. He was victorious over death. And so we need not fear death anymore. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. I'll give you a minute to get there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. My King James Study Bible says, A merciful high priest, if you're looking for a topic. Verse 14. Here it is. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Get this, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He's taken the fear out of death. He subjugated death. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a faithful, merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for sins of the people. And uh, for, for in that he himself suffered, hath suffered being tempted, he is able uh, to succor them that are tempted. But the key is he delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So Jesus', Jesus uh, resurrection showed that now death is subject to him. Here's the fourth thing. Um, His resurrection uh, celebrates the attainment of his new position. Go back to Mark 16 and verse 19. Jesus has a new position after resurrection. Okay, before the resurrection uh, of his three ministries, prophet, priest, and king, he was a prophet. Okay, but now after his resurrection, he is going to rise up, ascend up, and sit down on the right hand of God, and from henceforth until he becomes king of the world, from henceforth he will be the great high priest of heaven. Uh, look at Matthew chapter six, or Mark chapter 16 and verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and get this, sat on the right hand of God. And a powerful passage of Scripture there, thinking about Jesus sitting on the right hand of God. And then I think of Hebrews chapter 4, just two chapters uh, farther than we were. We, we read out of Hebrews chapter 2 how he, sub, how he would subjugate death to himself. Now in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, "...seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens..." Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly 
under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the resurrection of Jesus accomplished the physical renewing of his life uh, in this world with his dead body. It, it accomplished the reunion of his body and his spirit. It accomplished the subjugation of death. It attained his new position. And finally, he received a transfigured body. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is one of the becoming one of the hard passages for me to read anymore because of the word incorruption and immortality, but mostly I can get it right. But it begins in verse 50. Paul writes, Now this I say unto you, or this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. I've always got kind of a kick out of that. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> and, and Paul is so plain. Flesh and blood can't go there. You've got to give it up, pal. You've got to give it up if you're going to go there. Uh, it's going to happen. But notice verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's the idea of being transformed. Same thought as a butterfly when he comes out of a cocoon and, and uh, he was a caterpillar and now he's a butterfly. He was earthbound, now he's heavenbound. He was a worm, now he's a, a, a butterfly with wings and uh, everything is different. He's been transformed and uh, Jesus has been transformed. His body has been transformed. Verse 53, for this corruptible, that is this body that's capable of dying, Matter of fact, it's more than capable of dying. It is doomed to die. This body that is doomed to die, this corruptible must put on incorruption, that which is not doomed to die. This mortal, which is doomed to die, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. O death, where is thy sting? Paul cries rhetorically. O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that, Paul admonishes, Be, ye, be therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Back to Mark chapter 16 now. Um, so we see five reasons or five things that occurred with the resurrection of Jesus. His physical body was renewed to life. His body and his spirit were reunited. Uh, death became subject unto him. He attained a new position as high priest of the universe and he received a transfigured body like the one we'll have when we come up out of the grave as well. So go with me to verse 15, and we'll look now at the Great Commission according to uh, Mark. And this is the version of the Great Commission. There's five versions given. We'll review those quickly. Uh, but this is Mark's version. Go ye therefore, or go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And that's the essence of it. Now, he gives five signs. We'll talk about them next Sunday morning. Not going to get into those five signs this evening, but I will get into the evidence that one is truly believed. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But first of all, the first time that the Great Commission was given was in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16. Uh, and I'm going to start with verse 18 through 20, the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 28, you might want to turn there and see what the Great Commission according to Matthew. When I was a kid, this is the only version of the Great Commission that we were required to memorize when I was at the Ballard Baptist Church. Denise, remember those days? And, but I remember having a little yellow book that juniors, we were taught this as juniors, Baptist doctrine according to juniors, and we were taught the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. But for some reason or other, they didn't include verse 18, which I think is, is really important. So look with me in verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. How much power? All power is given unto me. By the way, this is the concept of authority. It's not the concept of power like dynamite. It's the concept of power like a police badge. Okay, all authority. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Okay, that's pretty important because now he's going to use that authority to sick us on a lost and dying world. He turns around with that authority and says, Go ye therefore... Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so that's Matthew's version of the Great Commission. And all you need to know this evening is that that's the mandate. That's the mandate, or that's the authority under which we work. When I talk to somebody and ask somebody, uh, could I ask you about your salvation? Um, they say, I don't think that's any of your business. I, I, I always say, no, really it is my business. Um, God gave me a commission to talk to everyone I can about the Lord Jesus. Now, if you tell me you don't want to hear, I'll leave you alone. But I, it is my business. And I've had people that have backed up and said, oh, okay. You know, it's like I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, a lot of people... They, they, they turn people away just with, you know, they make it a little, they have two or three layers of defense if you can get past that. Uh, who knows how far they'll listen to you give the gospel. And, but some people, they have this, well, it's a private matter to me. It's not any of your business. And if you can say, I don't mean this unkindly, but it is my business. God told me to do this. That makes it my business. Um, you know what? A lot of people have just dropped the wall right there and say, okay, all right, we'll talk. And uh, it's amazing how far you can get if you just keep trying. Um, but anyway, this is our mandate. This is our authority. Go to, we, we've been in Mark. We're going to not stop at Mark again. By the way, Mark is the magnitude, and, and it has to do with the recipients. Mark is who is going to receive the gospel. Who are we supposed to preach the gospel to? Well, it was to every living creature, every person, Jew and Gentile, black and white, red and yellow, um, rich or poor, educated or uneducated. There's not anybody that the gospel doesn't go to. Somebody said, well, I mailed a gospel track to the wrong address. 
No, there's no wrong address to mail a gospel tract to. You just can't mail it to a wrong address. It is addressed to everybody. And so here's Luke now. Go to Luke's version, Luke chapter 24. We just went through this not too long ago when we commissioned Nathan and Hannah to the mission field. I preached a little bit, and I had this on the screen over here talking about these commissions. Um, But we're doing it this evening without the screens. But in verse 46 of chapter um, 24, he says, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now that's the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. But notice here, this is what the gospel actually requires of men, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance and remission of sins. So this is the message. Okay, now get this. In Matthew Matthew was talking about the authority that we have to preach. Mark was talking about the recipients unto whom we preach. And now in Luke, we're talking about the message that we preach. We're preaching repentance and remission of sins. And then we come to John chapter 20. Next gospel over, John chapter 20 and verse 21. Jesus entered into the upper room, and this is John's record of the Great Commission. Look in verse 21, peace be unto you. By the way, you can't have peace unless you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Peace always means reconciliation. Uh, But then he says, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And and, uh, a week ago Sunday when we talked about this um, in the afternoon service, the idea was deputation. As the Father had deputed Jesus to represent him. Now Jesus has deputed you and I to represent Jesus. Like the Father called upon the Son to be his representative, the Son has called on you and I to be his representative. And then the last one is in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And how how are we going to know that you receive power? Are you going to are you going to exhibit some kind of a charismatic gift? Is that how we know you receive power? No, the way we know you receive power is ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. Here's what happens exactly. When you go out and you begin to tell somebody how to be saved, there's two messages taking place. The message that you are speaking to that man's mind and hopefully to his heart, but to his mind, intellectually, you're telling him that he's a lost sinner, that God is a holy God, that Jesus is the designated Savior, and that he must believe upon him and receive him if he's to have his sins forgiven. That's the message that you're given academically to the guy's head, to his intellect. But there is another message that is preached by the Holy Spirit of God that you can't hear, but that man hears it, There's a little voice talking in his heart saying, that man is telling you the truth. What he's saying is exactly right. Have you ever heard that little voice talking while a preacher was preaching? And you're thinking, that's right. What he's saying is exactly right. That's because the Holy Spirit is talking to your heart while that man is talking to your ears. And that's what takes place with this Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. So this is the dynamic or the power by which, the might by which the gospel is preached. Now, I find this interesting. 
as clear as this is to me in 2021. <laughs> How many of you find this pretty clear? These, these five presentations of the Great Commission are pretty clear. How many of you say, I, I understand it. I, it's clear to me. Clear as it is to me, it took a year before Philip took it up to Samaria. It was a year. It was at least 31 or 32 A.D. before Philip went to Samaria. And, and then it only began going out because they were being persecuted really hard in Jerusalem. So people began leaving Jerusalem because it was beginning to be difficult to live there. But nobody had an idea to take it. As clear as this in, you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria. And yet it took better than a year for this message to be taken up to Samaria. It just wasn't making that much sense to these people. Um, so understand, it was a year before Philip went to Samaria. It was eight years. You go back and do the math. It was eight years before Peter went up to Caesarea and, and talked to Cornelius and told Cornelius how to be saved. Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D., and it was at least 38 A.D. before Cornelius got saved, before there was one Gentile convert in the New Testament church. Amazing. It took 11 years before Antioch sent out the first missionaries. It was like 41 or 42 A.D. before Paul and Silas were sent out, uh, or Paul and Barnabas were sent out. It took 17 years before the question arise, or arose uh, about the Judaizers following the apostle of the Gentiles around and teaching their converts that they had to be circumcised to be saved. And uh, so 17 years after Jesus was crucified before that took place. That's Acts chapter 15. Think about that. 17 years took place between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 15. Now, you can sit down and read the book of Acts in a couple of hours, I, I guess at average speed. You could read the book of Acts. You won't study it that fast, but you can just sit down and read it page for page for page. You can read it in a couple hours. But to get from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 15 took 17 years. Amazing. Um, and then it was 34 years before you get to Acts chapter 28. 34 years before Paul is a prisoner in Rome. <laughs> 34 years. <laughs> Amazing how, how dull our perception is. Now, we pick, on, we pick on the New Testament Christians, but I'm telling you, a lot of us are not a lot brighter when it comes to obeying the Lord. And, and our understanding is a lot better. I mean, with our hindsight, we should be doing a lot better than we're doing. So let me go to the last thing, and we'll be closed after we do this. Look at, at Mark chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 16, and that is simply this, that faith is the condition for salvation. Now, there's Hebrew parallelism that takes place here. You've heard us talk about that before. I know I've mentioned it. Pastor Fox has mentioned it. It's saying the same thing twice, and uh, only maybe in two different ways. It doesn't mean that everything's going to rhyme. You know, when we talk about poetry in the United States, it, it, it has to rhyme, and it's got to have meter, and there's got to be a beat to it, you know. Got to keep the beat. Got to keep the beat. You know, there's got to be a little rhythm to it, 
And, uh, but uh, that's not poetry in Hebrew. It's just parallelism. And the, the concept is you say the same thing twice. Now, it may have some kind of, of meter to it, or it may not. But you're saying the same thing twice, but saying it two different ways. Now, look at what he says in verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized is saved. That's one way. Now, he's coming back, and he's saying the second time, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The word is condemned. But he said the same thing twice. It's just two different ways of saying it. Um, So understand, belief and unbelief are set against each other. Okay, if you believe, you're saved. If if you don't believe, then you're lost. Um, it's, It's simple as that. And the emphasis is on belief, not on baptism. How do we know that? Because baptism has no counterpart in the parallelism. You look at the parallelism, baptism just kind of hanging on to belief. Nobody is ever saved because they get baptized. Uh, salvation is the result of the belief, not the baptism. Uh, and, and by the way, don't forget that just because repentance is not mentioned doesn't mean it's not there. Repentance and belief are, by Bible-believing, Bible-understanding people, they're opposite sides of the same coin. In Acts chapter 20, um, Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 21, Paul is writing, and this is one of the last things he wrote before he went to Jerusalem where he was arrested, but he said, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, right there in the same verse. And it's the same thing. You repent toward God. Now, get this. Repentance is always giving, given prior significance. In other words, there's not going to be faith without repentance. Repentance always comes first, but repentance and, and belief are, are like breathing air. And uh, you, you have one, you, you're not going to have one without the other. So belief and unbelief are set against each other. The emphasis is on belief. Salvation is the result of belief, which is repentance and faith. Damnation is the result of unbelief. It is the neglect of one's uh, salvation, um, and it ends in condemnation. Now, the implication here in this verse, as we look at this, the implication is that genuine belief will be followed by baptism. Okay, look at this verse again. He that believeth and is baptized. In other words, if you really believe, baptism's going to come right in there. Okay, if you really believe. Um, but notice there's no counterpart to, to baptism, meaning that it's not being contrasted with anything. It's just tacked on to faith or believing. And uh, so um, understand this. There's no saving virtue in the ordinance of baptism, or it would have been specified again in the second half of the verse. Again, this is Hebrew parallelism. And if baptism were part of salvation, some, some kind of baptism would have been talked about again. It would have been repeated in the second part of the verse, but it wasn't. So baptism is not a condition of salvation. This is so important to get. It's not a condition of salvation, but it is a public confession of salvation. Don't ever forget that. It is a public confession of salvation. And uh, that baptism cannot uh, be a means of salvation is actually taught by a weight of superior evidence. 
In other words, if you take all of the evidence and stack it all up, the, the, weight, uh, uh, the weight on the side of, of baptism by faith alone as compared to baptism necessitating, pardon me, uh, but the, uh, the weight of salvation by faith alone compared to salvation that is necessary to have baptism, the, the weight is like way like this. And, and I'll give you numbers. It's like 150 verses to three or four. Okay, it's not even close. Not even close. The folks that try to read baptism into the Scriptures as a means of salvation, they've got like three or four verses to hang their fingernails onto. Um, and, uh, but, but there's at least 150 verses that point to salvation by faith alone. John the baptism, or John the baptizer, John the Baptist, John the baptizer was never baptized. Show me a verse where it says John the Baptist was ever baptized. There's no place that he was. Um, the thief on the cross was never baptized. The Gentiles in Caesarea were baptized only after their salvation. Jesus did not baptize any converts. Paul baptized very few of his. 150 passages state that salvation is by faith alone as compared to three or maybe four. But to me, one of the big killers is that baptism doesn't even picture uh, the new birth. Baptism pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Turn with me finally to Romans chapter 6, if you would, and I'm just about done. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. When you're there, say amen. Okay. All righty. Verse 3 of chapter 6. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his bathtub? Is that what it says? We were dipped in his bathtub? No. It says we were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried. Is that a bathing term? You know, mama's bathing the baby, so she buried the baby in the water. It's not a bathing term, um, and, it's, and it's not a birthing term. This is, this is a term concerning death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto what? Death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted, it's another word for buried. You know, when you plant seeds in the, in the ground, you, you dig a little trench, put the seeds in, and then put a little dirt over it. Don't put too much. You heard about the guy that was, uh, he moved out from the city to retire in a country. And he went to the farm store and he bought a hundred little chicks. Do you guys hear about this? Bought a hundred little chicks. And he came back a week later and he said to the guy at the farm store, this city guy that's retiring to the country, came back and he said, I need a hundred more little chicks. And the guy at the farm store said, well, are you sure you want a hundred more little chicks? I just sold you a hundred last week. He said, well, I can't figure out if I'm planting them too deep or too shallow, but they're just not coming up. Um, the guy probably shouldn't have been farming, you reckon? Um, 
But here's, here's the point. Burying is, planting is burying. Okay? And so, for we have been planted together in the likeness of his what? Death. We shall, we shall be also in the likeness of his what? His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't even picture anything about being saved. Um, The Lord Jesus chose that device of baptism because it anticipated what he was going to do on the cross for us. And so when he was baptized, he not only identified with the human race, but he was anticipating prophetically, this is what I'm going to do to save the world. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. And uh, so that is the picture behind uh, baptism. So understand, it isn't baptism that ever saved anybody. If ba- Listen, if baptism would save anybody, every frog would be going to heaven. Um, because they've been dipped and dipped and dipped a hundred times. Uh, and and it's just not going to save you. So anyway, you see this now. We go back and close with this verse. We'll read it one last time. Uh, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. It's just pretty simple. Trust the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Don't trust him and you'll be lost. If you do trust him, then you need to follow him in baptism. It's just that simple.